Welcome to this American Society of Hematology podcast, Hematopoiesis, a podcast for trainees by trainees. I am Alexis Collier, MD-PhD, a French hematologist with expertise in stem cell transplant. I am currently a research fellow at Boston Children's Hospital and a guest host for this podcast. In this episode, I have conversations about emerging gene therapies for hemoglobinopathies. Thank you for joining us. Ever since I started working on the genetics of human hematopoiesis as a clinical hematologist, I was constantly asked, how much can your work on the bench contribute to improved patient care? And many of you may be asking the same thing. In this podcast, let's discuss the relevance of fundamental research in genetics at the clinical level. The ability to modify gene expression in human cells is a major breakthrough that provides an opportunity to achieve cures for many genetic disorders. What made it possible? The fast progress in genetic studies, the discovery and the control of gene editors like CRISPR-Cas9, and improved approaches for hematopoietic stem cell transplantation have taken gene therapy from dream to reality and from bench to bedside. The unique possibility to edit gene expression in hematopoietic stem cells ex vivo before reinjecting them into patients made hematopoietic disorders a good early candidate for gene therapy. In this podcast, we cover the arc of work spanning numerous decades that resulted in the initial observations that fetal hemoglobin could ameliorate hemoglobin disorders to more recent molecular findings and advances in hematopoietic cellular therapies that have paved the way for these exciting therapeutic advances for sickle cell disease and thalassemia. Let's start with the interview of Dr. David Nathan, professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and president emeritus of Dana Faber Cancer Institute. He's dedicated his life work to the understanding and the treatment of hemoglobinopathies, including sickle cell disease. Good morning, Dr. Nathan. We are honored to host you for this podcast and would love to hear more about fetal hemoglobin and hemoglobinopathy from a historical perspective. Could you briefly summarize how we understood that fetal hemoglobin could ameliorate the severity of sickle cell disease and thalassemia? Well, my career in hemoglobinopathies really began back in the 50s at NIH where I was a clinical associate in the National Cancer Institute for a couple of years and worked with Nathaniel I. Berlin, who was very interested in disorders of erythropoiesis. But I began at the Brigham on thalassemia, influenced heavily by two great hematologists. One was David Weatherall, then at Liverpool, but coming to Oxford, and the other was Phaedon Fessis in Athens. Their work absolutely fascinated me, and I first began with thalassemia and showed, as had been previously shown in sickle cell anemia, that in fact fetal hemoglobin was the guardian of the patient with thalassemia. The more fetal hemoglobin they could make, the less severe the disease, and the same was true of sickle cell anemia. And I did some careful work on this, showing that the survival of red blood cells in beta thalassemia was seriously affected by the amount of fetal hemoglobin that they contained. Now, that had been shown in sickle cell anemia many years earlier by uh, largely Carl Singer and Matulski and folks like that, who had shown very clearly 
that the survival of sickle cells filled with fetal hemoglobin was much better than the cells that didn't have fetal hemoglobin. Bertels had shown that the irreversibly sickle cell is virtually devoid of fetal hemoglobin and has a survival of about a couple of days in the circulation, whereas the cells fetal hemoglobin survive much longer. And McIver and Parker Williams, and Parker Williams was one of my trainees years later, had shown that in the aplastic crisis of sickle cell disease, fetal hemoglobin rises. Why? Because those cells are not destroyed rapidly. The sickle cells are. So I knew that the critical issue for sickle cell anemia is the amount of fetal hemoglobin they make, and I simply had no idea what I was going to do about that. How was I going to get them to make more fetal hemoglobin? And so I started back on erythropoiesis, looking at how BFUE and CFUE function in erythropoiesis, and came across a sudden understanding of something because one of the fellows in Hausman's lab, Brian Clark, had made a major discovery. He had shown that while CFUE, the most mature erythroid progenitor, make almost no fetal hemoglobin in normal people, the peripheral blood BFUE, there are no CFUE in blood, make a lot of fetal hemoglobin. And that perked my ears because I said to myself, well, maybe the variation in fetal hemoglobin in patients who don't have particular mutations of the gamma gene is related to the fact that they may be producing their red cells from BFUE and not CFUE. And that made me wonder about something. Could you alter erythropoiesis in some way to get it more from BFUE than CFUE? Would that help? So, prior to the emergence of gene therapies, many attempts were made to enforce fetal hemoglobin expression, and one of the most important was the use of hydrocyurea in sickle cell disease. Could you explain us how it works and share the story of how Dr. Oloplatinu initially helped to develop the therapy? Paul Heller settled in Chicago, and he had a fellow in the lab named DeSimone, Joe DeSimone. And they had come to the following experiment. They said to themselves, 5-azacytidine is going to demethylate genes. Maybe if we give 5-azacytidine to bled baboons, we can get them to make more fetal hemoglobin. Now, why baboons? Well, baboons have a remarkable trait. When they're bled, they make massive amounts of fetal hemoglobin. And no one exactly knew why, but they do. So they gave them 5-azacytidine, and they made even more fetal hemoglobin, lots of it. And that prompted Tim Lay, a fellow in the laboratory of Arthur Nienhuis, who had been one of my trainees for a brief time, whom I admired enormously, and I admired Lay. They actually gave 5-azacytidine to a patient with thalassemia and later to patients with sickle cell disease, and they showed that the fetal hemoglobin went way up. And I said to myself, well, that's something very, very interesting. However, Ed Bentz, also one of my trainees who succeeded me as president of the Dana-Farber, wrote an editorial in the New England Journal saying that genetics has come to the bedside. And I looked at that and said, well, I don't think so. I think cancer chemotherapy has come to the bedside, and it's been there all along. 
And I, because I knew that CFUE have a lot more EPO receptors and divide a lot faster than BFUE. And so I said to myself, wait a minute, that's a cytostatic agent. And all that was, was it had nothing to do with demethylation. It has to do with knocking out the CFUE in a rapidly dividing bone marrow and making the marrow rely on BFUE. And naturally, they're going to make more fetal hemoglobin. Well, something much safer than 5-azocytidine, like hydroxyurea, ought to do that job just as well, if not better. So I remember going to Stu Orkin or a Platt. Stu had just come recently from NIH, and it was clear that he was an enormous star. And I put him in charge of everything having to do with hemoglobin. And Aura wanted to be a clinical investigator. She was caring for all the sickle patients. And I, I went to them and said, we're going to give these patients hydroxyurea. And they looked at me and said, no, you're not going to do that one single minute. That's a terrible thing to do. You can't do that. You have no idea whether it will work, and it, it might poison them. You can't do that. You'll have to show us in monkeys that that drug works. So I put my tail between my legs and crawled away and found a guy named Letvin, who was a terrific fellow, an immunologist expert on monkeys. There was, a at that time, a monkey farm associated with the Harvard Medical School in Worcester. And he went out there and bled some monkeys, and they made fetal hemoglobin, just as the baboons did, and then he gave them hydroxyurea. And the only time the New England Journal has ever published a paper on monkeys was that paper that showed that hydroxyurea had a profound effect in two monkeys. In fact, the monkeys looked exactly alike, and their charts looked exactly alike. There were two of them, and they looked identical. I've never, never seen such a wonderful replication. So it was published. And then Aura did a great job, brought in two or three, four patients, treated them with hydroxyurea, and we were off and running. George Dover was an enormous help to us measuring F cells, which he could do. He was an expert on the individual cells making fetal hemoglobin. So that paper got published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. And then George and the group in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins, did the first clinical trial because I didn't want to do big clinical trials. And they did that, and they showed clearly that hydroxyurea was a potent stimulant of fetal hemoglobin. And later on, it showed that about 50% of patients, and by the way, half of them probably don't take the pills, will respond and have clinical improvement. We did show, finally, that indeed CFUE don't make fetal hemoglobin, but BFUE, both human and monkey, do. And so I know that the way hydroxyurea works is to hit those rapidly dividing CFUE with their rich number of EPO receptors and leave the marrow dependent on BFUE. That's why it works. So it's working as a cytostatic agent. Indeed, we showed in one paper that isn't cited so much in blood that the drug doesn't work at all in vitro. You can put all the hydroxyurea you want in a bone marrow and then culture the progenitors. Nothing happens. Why? Because you've still got those progenitors in there. You haven't killed them yet. And unless you kill all the CFUE, which is difficult to do in vitro, you've got to give the dose for a longer period of time than you can usually do an in vitro study. The facts are the fetal hemoglobin is not affected in a quick study like that.
So to summarize, hydroxyurea has a mild suppressive role and shifts the red blood cell production in bone marrow towards rest erythropoiesis to increase fetal hemoglobin. Is it how it works? Yes, indeed. It works exactly that way. And way prior to that, Blanche Alter, who was one of my best trainees, showed very clearly that in recovery from bone marrow transplantation, there's an F-cell response. Fetal hemoglobin goes up. It goes up because of this suppression of erythropoiesis and then repopulation and production of red cells from BFUE. And that's very common in all bone marrow suppression disorders. So there's nothing magical about these drugs. They're just good cancer agents. And that's why I always tell Ed Bentz, no, you became president of Dana-Farber. Please redo that editorial. Uh, Cancer chemotherapy has once again come to the bedside. Clearly the answer for sickle cell anemia, get them to make more fetal hemoglobin. If you can do that, it does two things. One, it reduces the amount of sickle cell in the cell. And two, it is the best anti-sickling agent that is both in nature and I think in pharmacy. Those that are making stuff now to inhibit sickling are on a good path, but there are real problems doing that because though the cells don't sickle as well, they are filled with sickle hemoglobin and they still have clinical symptoms. So the patients just don't get the help from that that they get from fetal hemoglobin. We have to make more of it. And that's where a gene therapy is coming in now. While we knew that fetal hemoglobin can help improve the manifestations of sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia, little was known about the genetic control of this process. Let's talk to Dr. Vijay Sankaran, who has led key studies on the role of PCL11A in the control of the fetal to adult hemoglobin switch. Dr. Sankaran, could you please discuss what was known about the genetic control of fetal hemoglobin and how these early insights led a number of investigators to employ newer genetic methods to interrogate this process? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Alexis. It's really great to be here. So, at the time I started working on this problem, and it was around 2002-2003, as you've heard about, we knew that fetal hemoglobin levels could ameliorate the symptoms of sickle cell disease and thalassemia. We knew about this for decades. And there were some clues about factors that might be important for the transcriptional regulation of the beta-like globin genes, including adult beta-globin, as well as the fetal hemoglobin genes, the gamma globin genes. But there was not a specific clue about factors that were important and that specifically regulated this switch from fetal to adult hemoglobin. And this is where there was, you know, a lot of work that had been done to attempt to identify the factors, but really not a lot of clues about that. And it would take a long time to review all of that, but there was an extensive amount of work And so, you know, when I started working on the problem now 20 years ago, there was a lot of clues about the use of mouse models and other systems that people had used to study this process. And while we attempted to use those systems, most of the experiments we did failed. But we were fortunate because on the side, while we were doing all of these studies, we were collecting samples from patients with sickle cell disease, including in the cooperative study of sickle cell disease. And so we were really fortunate because in 2007, we had heard that actually there was another group, Antonio Cow's group, 
that had identified some genetic associations with fetal hemoglobin levels in non-anemic individuals. And we had a large cohort of patients with sickle cell disease. And so we actually teamed up with them to start to replicate the associations in sickle cell disease, which we did. But the important part of that for us was that actually that there was a significant association on chromosome 2 within the BCL11A gene. And that finding, that identification, really made us move forward and start to examine, well, was BCL11A, which had been well studied for its role in B lymphocyte production and for its role in, in brain development, was it important at all for the switching process? And, you know, that was a question. And because of all of our failures and because we've been studying fetal hemoglobin, we were really well poised to study this process. And so I remember we started to do these experiments to, at the time, take primary human hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells and differentiate them to red blood cell precursors. And we could do this in vitro. We were very primitive about it at the time. You know, we didn't really, you know, there wasn't much experience that at least we had in doing it, but we were learning how to do it. And we were employing both siRNAs and then later some lentiviral shRNAs. And the results we got from that were striking. I mean, it was really incredible to see the degree of gamma globin induction that we got when we knocked down BCL11A. And those initial clues, and that was followed by a lot of work by a number of people in the field to better understand how BCL11A was doing this, but that really taught us that BCL11A was such a critical and very specific regulator of this fetal hemoglobin levels, and, and it was silencing fetal hemoglobin. So that's a long-winded way of kind of getting at your question, but I think really was the initial findings that led us along the way. After identifying an association between BCL11A locus and fetal hemoglobin expression, how did you go about understanding the role of BCL11A in hemoglobin switching? Yeah, that's a terrific question. I think that at first, obviously, the clue was, well, look, BCL11A does have a role when you cause it to lose function, you induce gamma globin. And I had started, and then that was continued by others in the Orkin lab, some of the work to characterize some of the mouse models with BCL11A knockouts. And those really showed that we could delay the switch from gamma to adult beta globin in transgenic mice with the adult beta globin locus in that setting. And so I think that those clues really set the framework for understanding that actually BCL11A was a central regulator of this process. There was more to understand in terms of how exactly it was doing this, and I still don't think we have a complete picture, but certainly I think the consensus now after over a decade of work is really that there's probably important roles both for BCL11A locally silencing the gamma globin genes, and this was largely work from, from both the Crossley and Orkin labs, but there's also important roles that long-range interactions have. And we've shown genetically that you know, there's probably these interesting interactions between long-range you know, regulatory elements and BCL11A. But I think importantly, we've learned a lot about how BCL11A is doing this. I think in parallel, there was lots of advances from the Orkin lab to identify regulatory elements that were erythroid-specific for BCL11A. And, and that really set the framework to understand, okay, could we, as genome editing tools were developed, could those be good targets? And in fact, now that's been clinically proven by trials from CRISPR Therapeutics and other companies. You know, other groups like David Williams at Boston Children's used short hairpin RNAs to actually knock down BCL11A as a gene therapy approach. 
And all of those approaches have at least in early clinical trials shown success. So I think we've really seen in a decade what were initially just some clues that actually this is an important factor for regulating the switch move towards something that's actually been adopted broadly. And, you know, we were fortunate because obviously, as I had mentioned, we were involved in this early study with the late Antonio Cao. At the same time, Sui Lei Tian had identified a similar association, and that was really important because it said, look, there's a robust association at BCL11A, and really, I think, set the field forward. And so I think that that's been really exciting to see where the field has moved. So how do you see this growing novel estrogen regulation paving the way for cell therapies, including gene therapy and genome editing approaches? Yeah, well, that's a terrific question and one that I would have two answers to. The first is, I think, obviously, we understand a lot about BCL11A being an important target, at least a few ways that I've mentioned already that it could be targeted. I think it also paves the way for trying to do further basic science studies that could give us a fundamental understanding on, are there other ways, are there other approaches we could use? You know, is better genome or epigenome editing tools become available? Could we employ some of those to actually target it? But I think for us, it's also really motivated us to think broadly about how we could actually take the example of BCL11A and try to more broadly understand other potential targets that could be useful. And I think there's probably no better place to start than human genetics. And so we have been trying to pursue, you know, are there other avenues by which we could pursue this? And so I think both of those approaches, both thinking about how we can better target BCL11A, what are other opportunities, but also what are the other factors regulating this process are both incredible areas that I think in the near future, and particularly listeners of this podcast who are the people doing the research, will greatly contribute to, and I think that are very exciting areas. To know more about the tremendous opportunities to translate these findings to gene therapy, let's now talk to Dr. Courtney Fitzhugh, who is a leader in the field of emerging cell therapies to treat sickle cell disease, and works for the Cellular and Molecular Therapeutics Branch at the National Institute of Health. Could you briefly discuss the history of cell therapies for sickle cell disease and give us an overview of the challenges that the field has recently faced? How have these been addressed? So the first multicenter trial for pediatric patients with sickle cell disease was reported in 1996. This included myeloablative or high-dose chemotherapy to completely wipe out the patient's bone marrow, replace it with that of the donor in order to cure the sickle cell disease. And if the child has a sibling who's a complete tissue match, this is very effective. More recent studies have shown that the efficacy is about 95%. So about 95% of patients are living free of sickle cell disease after that type of transplant. There are some complications, including graft-versus-host disease, that remain an issue, but uh, they're getting better over time. Because of the limitation of high-dose chemotherapy in adults who have a lot of subclinical or overt organ damage, a non-myeloblative approach was initiated in order to give drugs to suppress the immune system in order to try to decrease the chance of graft rejection and graft-versus-host disease. And this approach has been successful in adults, even with severe comorbidities. But the main limitation has remained that only a minority of patients with sickle cell disease have an HLA-match sibling. So more recently, haploidentical transplant has emerged where half-match parents, children, and siblings can serve as a donor. There's about a 90% chance that a patient with sickle cell disease will have a haploidentical donor. And more recently, those trials have been more successful in the pediatric and adult setting. However, there is still a chance of graft rejection and graft versus host disease. Hence, gene therapy and gene editing have emerged. 
where you don't have to worry about those immune complications of graft rejection and graft versus host disease, and pretty much everybody will have a donor. So that's what led to these types of curative therapies. Early clinical trials saw promising results. However, some safety concerns have recently been raised in lentivirus-based gene therapy, where cases of mild malignancy have been noted. Can you discuss this risk and why they emerge? Sure. So uh, Bluebird Bio recently reported a two of 47 of their patients to receive gene therapy developed some type of myeloid malignancy as AML in both patients between about three and five and a half years after gene therapy and, and both patients were deceased. So this is higher than expected incidence after patients receive some type of curative therapy. It's also something that's been reported in the allogeneic setting, especially after graft rejection. So this is a, has been a problem from some types of allogeneic transplants, or more recently also for gene therapy. And do we know if these malignant transformations are related to the potential risk of hematopoiesis in sickle cell disease, to the conditioning regimen, or to the use of an integrative antiviral backbone? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I'll have to say for these two patients, very extensive studies were done to see if it was related to the drug product itself. And both analyses did not show that the drug product or the lenoviral integration or any of that led to these complications. One of the studies did conclude that busulfan conditioning played a role. Both of the patients did receive busulfan conditioning. We reported in the allogeneic setting that patients who developed these myeloid malignancies and had a pathogenic TP53 mutation at the time of the diagnosis of the myeloid malignancy had that same mutation present at baseline. So it's possible in the gene therapy and in the allogeneic setting that patients who have these somatic mutations and then reject their grafts or receive gene therapy, that those stem cells, when exposed to chemotherapy and or radiation, and the proliferative stress that's required to repopulate the bone marrow can lead to clonal expansion and the development of the myeloid malignancy. So this is something that my lab and others are looking into to more. So we don't have the definitive answer right now, but that's our hypothesis. Given the risk of developing myeloid malignancies, do you think clonal hematopoiesis should be closely monitored in these patients? Yes, I do believe that blood should be stored in order to do future assessments of this risk. I know that some gene therapy trials and others are looking to perform risk assessment before gene therapy to make decisions about whether the patients should move forward. At this time, there's no specific study or, or result where we can say for sure this patient is or is not going to develop myeloid malignancy. It could be because we're not looking deeply enough. It could be because we don't know what mutations are going to expand or evolve and lead to the myeloid malignancy development. So I think at this point, it's very important to get the blood samples so that when more studies are done at a, a wider level and we figure out what the genetic risk factors are, then we can go back and study. And then for the future patients, we can say, okay, you have this mutation you shouldn't do gene therapy, maybe you should do this other type of curative therapy, or you don't have this mutation and you're fine to move forward. But at this point, we do not know how to predict who's going to develop myeloid malignancy after gene therapy for sickle cell disease. What do you think should be the attitude regarding this risk of transformation? Yeah, so I know the FDA and NHLBI have felt that it's fine to move forward. I think it's just very important to educate patients about this risk that we don't know how to predict about who's going to develop these myeloid malignancies. There are patients that have received gene therapy and are doing very well. And if a patient decides that I don't want to live with sickle cell disease anymore, I'm having a lot of pain or, or whatever it is, my quality of life is terrible, I have a lot of fatigue, I'm willing to take the risk. You know, I think as, as long as you educate those patients and it's part of a clinical trial, that it's okay to move forward. 
speaking of, what are the specificities for clinical trials in the field of gene therapy? Yeah, I think, you know, just clinical trials in general, whether it's gene therapy or gene editing or allogenic transplant, I think the clinical trials are based on deciding who are you going to enroll, you know, do a benefit risk assessment and who you're willing to move forward to enroll in your trial. What are the stopping rules, you know, making sure there's monitoring, what are the risks and the benefits. So I think regardless of if it's autologous or allogeneic transplant, the clinical trial will be the same. Considering the benefits and the risks, what criteria should be considered when proposing enrollment in a gene therapy clinical trial for a sickle cell disease? Yeah, so I've, I've had a lot of experience with consenting patients with sickle cell disease as part of curative therapy uh, trials. And the approach that I take is to just inform the patients about the trials and, and what trials they're eligible for. So if I have a patient who has recurrent painful crises and they're an adult, and they're eligible for my haploidentical trial or someone else's gene therapy trial, I talk to them about the benefits and risks of both approaches and let them decide which trial they want to enroll on. So I don't think it's for me to decide if they're eligible for, for all the trials, which one they should enroll in. We should really leave it up to the patient and their family to decide. What can make the difference between eligible and non-eligible patients? So right now, the biggest limitation to gene therapy and uh, even gene editing is that they require myeloablative chemotherapy, so high-dose chemotherapy. So there are strict exclusion criteria. So a lot of the patients who are referred to me aren't eligible for gene therapy because they have some type of liver damage or kidney damage. They're just not eligible. So I think that's the biggest limitation in order to really expand gene therapy for the future is to, and I know people are studying non-genotoxic conditioning in order to myeloblate the bone marrow without using high-dose chemotherapy so that this opportunity can be expanded to more, especially adults with sickle cell disease who have organ damage. Do you expect gene therapy to take over standard transplantation procedures for sickle cell disease in the future? Yeah, I think that it's very hard to answer that question because we don't know what the long-term efficacy and safety of gene therapy are going to be. I do not think that gene therapy is going to take over the standard transplant. I think gene therapy is going to be very expensive and not, ev not everybody's going to have access to it. There's a lot more long-term follow-up with the more standard allogeneic transplants, so efficacy is well-known. Toxicity is getting to be more well-known, so some patients may decide, okay, there's more experience in this setting, I want to enroll. And graft-versus-host disease is becoming less and less of a problem in allogeneic transplant, especially with post-transplant cyclophosphamide. So I don't see that it's going to take over, at least in the foreseeable future. I know there's a lot to discuss, but could you provide a future outlook for gene therapy, especially in hemoglobinopathies? I think there's a lot of really smart, talented people working on this. There's industry partners, there's a lot of stakeholders, and you know, gene therapy has presented some early challenges, but a lot of people are working it out to try to improve it. So I'm optimistic that it will be something that can be offered to more patients in the future. And I'm just looking forward to seeing more long-term results, to seeing how we're really truly able to benefit our patients with sickle cell disease. So here we close this podcast. I hope you have enjoyed traveling with us from the bench to the bedside. A warm thank you to Drs. Nathan, Sanker, and Andrew Hugh for sharing these compelling stories. And thank you all for giving credit to this podcast. 